our ultimate goal is to kind of be advocates for improving society through improving the design of the built environment. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here today with author and publisher Nicholas Kemper, architecture critic and historian Philip Denny. Nicholas and Philip join us today to discuss uh, their uh, fantastic newish tabloid publication, New York Review of Architecture. Nicholas, Philip, welcome. Thanks for inviting us. Um, it's great to be here. Yeah, thank you for inviting us. Um, and I would underline too, we we are we are part of a team that is. Um, there are a lot of people that bring it together, uh, including our editor Samuel Medina and deputy editor Marianella De Priole. Um, and uh, we have a set of Skyline editors and other contributors. It's a large endeavor bringing the publication together. Indeed. Um, Nicholas, you are in fact the publisher. Um, I have some inclination that while you describe it as a, a cooperative or a, a collective, uh, you know, a kind of curatorial project that involves many, many people, um, this was somehow your idea? Um, so uh, I was working for an engineering firm in 2019, and um, there were uh, a lot of people I knew who were working in other firms um, who uh, were interested in setting up a publication. Um, and the impetus was that in New York, you have this cornucopia of conversations um, and you have all of these institutions operating at a world-class level uh, and hosting world-class conversations. Um, and if you're actually working for a firm, you can't go to all of them. And personally, I have chronic FOMO. Um, and uh, so we said, let's try to see if we can bring in different people to go to all these different conversations and then write pithy little write-ups that are easy to work your way through. Um, and then we can build a publication off of that. Um, and Philip, I think, came in almost immediately as one of our correspondents. Um, and um, then we we went from there. Our, we were saying, like, what's something we can produce on a monthly basis, given that everybody's working? Um, and we settled on uh, a single sheet, uh, 11 by 17 sheet um, that we would mail out. And that was an issue. Um, that was issues one through 14 um, was just the single 11 by 17 sheet. You know, aside from from Nicholas, I think I'm the, the oldest protagonist of the magazine still working on the masthead at this point. And I began writing for Naira, I think, in the first or second issue, actually, that would have been in 2019. And ever since, I've been working as an editor, um, kind of helping to build out and evolve the magazine. Um, but as Nicholas was saying, you know, New York is a, a place that's absolutely kind of overwhelmed by amazing events, amazing people, incredible lectures happening on a daily basis. And it often feels like it's either uh, something you chronically miss out on or you just don't have a sense of, of what's happening. Um, so part of what drew me to joining Naira and working with Nicholas was just the kind of conviction that architecture is a field and architecture in New York more specifically wasn't being served well by the media that existed, by the by the press, by the newspapers, by 
by what we had. So when Nicholas told me that he wanted to found a newspaper for architecture, I was immediately on board. So Philip, the masthead uh, bills you as uh, one of uh, a variety of editors at large. Um, does this mean that you get an expense account and you can go anywhere you want? <laughs> well, uh, unfortunately, there's no expense account yet, or at least I'm uh, handling uh, paying my own expense account. And I do quite a bit of, of travel, and that's um, that's kind of been me taking the at-large part of my position as editor-at-large <laughs> quite seriously. Um, one of the things that I really enjoy doing with Naira is kind of representing it abroad and introducing more and more people to this platform. And so beyond uh, the national audience, which is already considerable, there is this international audience as well. So you, you mentioned issue number one. Um, this is May, May, May 1st, 2019. And initially, you know, you describe it as a, a place where you can pull together um, conversations about architecture. Let's call it architectural culture. Um, and yet the, the, the tagline, um, you know, that, that, that the review, uh, you know, deploys is, is rather, you know, declarative. New York Review of Architecture reviews architecture in New York, full stop. <laughs> there's something both rhetorically clear about this, um, but also I think there's an editorial point of view there in which, you know, like, can can we talk about buildings again, <laughs> right? Uh, in that first edition, um, uh, May 2019, um, you describe three commitments um, for the review. Uh, one, to make a commitment to buildings. Uh, and I quote, we suspect many are lacking and it is past time that someone said something about it. So from the very earliest incantation of this thing, the review was meant to be, you know, a, a venue to get back to talking about buildings. And I wonder if, if am I correct in reading that history? Was there a sense that, um, uh, Nicholas, that you, you felt as though there wasn't really a venue for us to be critical about the quality of building in New York City? Oh, that's this is great that you went back to our our first issue. The, um, I yes, no. There's totally a tendency among um, architecture publications to not actually talk about buildings, um, and that was part of what we were um, going after. Uh, I think there were a number of kind of um, narratives that we were trying to flip. Um, one of which was. Um, the name itself, which we talked about a little bit briefly, but the um, in terms of um, New York Review of Architecture, there is a tendency among design and architecture publications to choose the most obscure possible name and a obscure set of graphics that it doesn't tell you who they are, or what they're doing, even though they probably are reviewing architecture in New York um, and much of the time. Um, and so it was like, what if we picked the most boring possible name um, that tells you exactly where it is and what it's doing um, and actually pick pretty straightforward graphics as well. I wouldn't say boring, but definitely not. Uh, we don't have like zigzagging text or circles or that kind of thing. Um, and uh, then prove that this is a great publication by having great work. Um, and part of that is by making the work extremely grounded and to ground it. Uh, part of what we did is we said, well, instead of filling it up with a bunch of opinions from our writers, we're actually going to really emphasize foregrounding other people's opinions and like bringing them together in one place and analyzing them and contextualizing them. And that is the commitment to um, 
sending people out to events and that was present in the first issue and continues to be quite present as to like really foreground other people's voices and actually take quotes and take names and all of that. Um, and another part is to really um, say, yes, we're actually going to talk about physical buildings uh, and that can be a point of departure and uh, all kinds of crazy things, but there will be a physical building. And that's a true line that um, we've, we've held on to actually, I think, um, we had a major reformat last September um, and um, where we switched to newsprint um, into something that actually looks a lot like uh, the Brooklyn Rail or actually our kind of spirit publication, which would be Skyline from the 70s um, and uh, also the New York Review of Books. Um, and part of that was also reorganizing the way all of the editorial content fit together and part of that was uh, for the table of contents, um, our designer showed us a mock-up that had this grid of um, actually uh, portraits of all the different authors. And we were like, well, that's cool, but people don't necessarily know who these authors are and like could change around. It could be trick anyway. What if we actually made it a grid of uh, portraits of buildings? Um, and so we, we assign each piece or many of the pieces, essentially spirit buildings, um, a building that is mentioned in the piece. Uh, and then you, when you open it up, you see these are all the articles, but then you also see this grid of buildings and it tells you which building isn't on which page. Among the three commitments you announced in 2019, the second, in addition to being focused on buildings and saying something about the fact that many buildings seem to be lacking, um, there was a commitment that you made in addition to discussing buildings, to cover off the 14 different events across six major institutions um, and to build, therefore, a cooperative, a working group of correspondence to curate, you know, let's say, call it architectural culture. Um, in that sense, you also referred in your third commitment to um, serving in a way as New York's ghostwriter. Tell us about that notion of the idea of a ghostwriter underwriting or kind of revealing the city's um, un unarticulable um, kind of uh, subconscious contents. Um, yeah, I think, um, let's see here. Um, the ghostwriter is definitely a, whatchamacallit, um, Rem Coolhouse reference um, to Delirious New York. Uh, which I believe was the commitment he made at the beginning of that book. Um, and um, I think it's just the importance of having um, a record of, of what has passed and like an engaged record, not simply um, like a full on transcription, um, but something that actually says this is um, in the past week, what people have said. And that's something actually that we're kind of still building towards and reckoning with entirely how you get there. Um, but a big step forward we made two years ago was to formalize, we had kind of edged into having a email list and then a, something of a newsletter. And then we really sat down and said, let's turn this into a, a formal newsletter. And that was called Skyline, which is actually a column that has also appeared in the publication since the very beginning. Um, and um, Skyline has those ghostwriting aspect where it's, it's giving you dispatches from conversations or even just people around town uh, or going to parties or exhibition openings and so on and so forth. Um, and it comes out every week. So uh, it's actually an amazing process whereby all the content is commissioned on Friday and then it publishes the next Friday uh, and moves very fast um, in a way that 
the print moves a little more slowly um, and has the longer, heavy hitting, carefully edited um, pieces that are possible at the slower pace. And the weekly newsletter, is that available on Substack? That is, yeah, that is our newyork.substack.com, which uh, we were an early mover on Substack. But um, we're still thinking about ways to even further. We also, at the same time, actually have, I, I was just at a event last night, not an architecture event, but there was, so I was explaining to some people what New York Review of Architecture was, and there was one guy there who happened to actually work for an architecture office just out of college, actually, and he heard New York Review of Architecture. He's like, oh, yeah. They have the best list of architecture events anywhere. I actually have it queued up on my phone um, so that I can check to see if there's like a talk I can listen to over lunch or go to that evening. <laughs> I mean, the the implication there, among many other things, is that these you know six world class organizations and institutions they don't always share well. No, they certainly they certainly are you know producing their own their own uh, culture, but at the same moment, uh, often disaggregated. Um, Nicholas, you you've been quoted as you know describing your childhood love for tall buildings, um, and um, you know you've written uh, among other things about elevators and double loaded corridors. I'm I'm curious to know like. What has drawn you to the quotidian or the, you know, the 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 fundamental kind of elements, the 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 er elements of, of of building blocks in those in those pieces? Oh, interesting. Um, yes, um, I would say that they're not so well. I, in the case of elevators and hallways, they're both kind of fundamental to structuring the public realm and the shared realm and the spaces that we share within a building. Um, and um, actually the thrust of both of those pieces, which was cancel the corridor and <laughs> seize the elevators, <laughs> um, was uh, the um, that both of these have become subject to the, like by default, by cultural assumption, we think that elevators are to be managed and run privately, um, even though they're effectively vertical trains um, and most trains are run publicly. Um, and so horizontal infrastructure is collective and vertical infrastructure is privatized. Yes. And it's, it's not clear if that is necessarily ideal um, or the way things should be. Uh, and uh, for hallways, they're essentially streets uh, that happen to be indoors, uh, but in the same way um, they are, are held privately um, and treated as like a nuisance that has to be, you know, uh, an expense that needs to be minimized um, rather than an opportunity for interaction. Um, I mean, I should mention, in addition to, you know, the, the quotidian, you know, building blocks of building making elevators and, and, and corridors, you've, of course, also written um, uh, and been concerned about the role of visual biophilia, the postmodern revival or return, whichever we want to call it, and a range of other topics. And I'm struck in that regard, not only, you know, um, not only in your work, but more broadly, the editorial frame of the of the review is the diversity of opinion, the different tones and styles. That that's you know, I mean, I'm struck by a you know a, a review that um, declares itself as being about the review of buildings. You know, there's finally a place where we can actually talk about buildings and their successes and failures. But also, I don't necessarily know. I mean, full disclosure, I'm I am a subscriber, happily so. I mean, I, I don't know when I go into a piece what the conclusion is going to be. And that itself alone for me was evidence of the fact that the review is filling a very important void because there, there there isn't that kind of place where I can go read and 
A.O. Scott review of a film and have that level of, you know, kind of open-mindedness. Um, one of the questions I've got um, for both of you has to do with the role of criticism. I think, you know, I mentioned A.O. Scott and I think, you know, one of his, you know, kind of aphorisms or one of the things that I've internalized about good criticism is that one necessarily presupposes that the critic begins with some sense of empathy for the work. That is, you're, you're not criticizing purely to be, you know, kind of negating, and nor are you going to give, you know, valuable, um, valuable column inches to something which is purely panned you know, out of a lack of empathy or understanding. But, but I wonder, is that is that a is that a quaint old notion, or is there a new way of thinking about criticism? I I don't think that's quaint at all, and it's it's really wonderful to kind of land on this thread of conversation because. I think that one of the uh, strengths and one of the kind of enduring focuses of Naira is to think about what is exactly at stake in architectural criticism. We can look around, we can observe, we can see that there is definitely a dearth of architectural criticism happening globally. We can look around locally and see a kind of decline in the, the volume and the number of column inches devoted to architectural criticism. But Naira has grown into a platform and a publication which has a pretty clear mission that's being advanced through criticism. And it's not exactly our uh, public facing tagline, but it's definitely a, a mission statement that we believe in, which is that our ultimate goal is to kind of be advocates for improving society um, through improving uh, the design of the built environment. I mean, it's architecture, buildings, infrastructure, public space, and so on. And we see Naira as a kind of means of contributing to that project by raising the standard of discourse, by making space for criticism, and ultimately um, advancing a kind of lively discussion on the built environment through multiple channels, multiple formats, so that we can reach uh, different audiences academics, uh, practitioners, students, and so on. And in fact, you invite contributions from a, a, a wide array or a wide diverse array of authors, um, you know, those that are well-established, let's say, and those that are uh, emerging. Um, recent, um, uh, recent building projects that have been reviewed uh, in the review include um, the new terminal complexes at LaGuardia, a reconsideration of Madison Square Garden, um, but also a review of the Death Star, uh, as well as projects outside of New York. And I wonder, you know, fr from an editorial point of view, how do you and, and, and Sam Medina make choices about, you know, what in, in what is a, essentially a kind of a monthly review in which there are limited column inches, ultimately, in the physics of a print publication? How do you make decisions about what to include? Um, you know, is it primarily focused on new construction in the city. Uh, obviously, Hudson Yards has been covered as well. So are, is it focused primarily on that, or, or is there also room for historical pieces as well? Yeah, that's a conversation that happens um, primarily between Samuel Medina and Marianella de Prile, um, and then um, other people have uh, inputs that they can pull upon. Um, and... Um, sometimes, I mean, so it, we we have a very controlled editorial process for the print, um, and then we have this very porous, actually rotating editorial process for Skyline, where every week it's actually a different editor, and they will pull on, they will shift the focus in different directions, with the through line being like, these are events that we all think should be covered. Um, and um, I think uh, 
Sammy and Marinella are good at doing a combination of um, saying these are important topics that need to be dealt with, uh, that we need to cover, and also letting the writers kind of lead them. So a writer comes and says, this is something I want to take on. Um, and then, so like LaGuardia, that was an assigned piece where it was, it has opened, um, let's write about it, and writing about it in an unconventional way, um, because LaGuardia is well covered, uh, but... <laughs> No one. It was Ava Hagberg who did that piece, and and Ava's got a a very unique way of reviewing a building um, that no one else is going to have. Um, that piece led with the you know understanding Laguardia not through the giant fountain, but through you know her Starbucks experience. Yes, and there's a sculpture that reminds her of planes exploding, and now every time I see that sculpture, I think of a plane exploding and Ava. <laughs> um, uh, and. <laughs> <laughs> the 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 reconsideration of Madison Square Garden by Thomas de Monceau was a good example of 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 you know, how the review is often you know giving me a point of view that I didn't expect you know in addition to being well written obviously well you know well argued well researched um, the the de Monceau piece was really you know like a you know maybe we've gotten this wrong maybe there's something about this that we're not seeing properly and I'm struck by that but also the. The, the relative diversity of opinion, you know, that that's, again, I think it speaks to the relative dearth of architectural criticism that we found out there. It also speaks, I think, to the role of the review in being timely. Now, you mentioned that you you receive submission proposals all the time. I, I understand that you, in fact, you pay your contributors, which is also rel relatively, you know, relatively impressive, um, but that ultimately the ability to respond to new work and to call conversations that are bubbling up in the city strikes me as among the successes already. Um, in addition to uh, your focus on buildings, uh, you've also done pieces that deal with urban design planning, infrastructure, you know, bigger public works. Um, but you've also had pieces that deal with uh, rent burden, student debt, the status of architectural labor. And I wonder how you and your editorial team go about making decisions, again, between balancing, on the one hand, the, the focus on buildings as criticism, uh, the skyline, you know, pieces which are more about the social and cultural life of architecture in the city, and then these deeper societal challenges. Yeah, the debt piece is, I think, one of the strongest pieces we've published this year um, by Anjali Rao. And uh, that was edited by Marianella Dupile. And that um kind of got came onto our radar actually through skyline osvaldo um was uh editing that week's or a, a, a skyline one week and he said you know what we got to talk about debt student debt and he actually did this amazing thing where he um took a screenshot that slightly redacted of his own student debt records and so he actually displayed how much he owed um right up front there um and um had different people give testimonials and then that kind of led to saying oh we really need to make sure we cover this in uh the print and then Angeli took it on and did a really good reported piece on it um and that's something that has been also a consistent through line is that we have a kind of a progressive bent um that i mean what philip was saying in terms of we really want to make a better society through a better better architecture or at least better understanding architecture um and um because it's not, we can't necessarily change the architecture, but it may be if we allow society to better understand its architecture, then um, they can change it, uh, or readers can change it. Um, and um, in that sense, we've definitely jumped into a few different phrases. 
Well, I think that's spot on, Nicholas, and just to tie together a couple of remarks here. I think that part of what allows Naira to be timely is also this uh, kind of um, sensibility of editorial breadth, right? So there's a there's a wide range of conversations happening at any moment. Um, you never know which way the news is going to turn. And there's, of course, many different perspectives that can come into the, the conversation in a, in a platform like Naira. And I think that really, if you read an issue of New York Review of Architecture um, very carefully, you get a sense that it isn't a review of buildings. It isn't a review of architecture per se, but really it's um, something larger. It's a kind of review of the built environment and whatever that might mean as a kind of open category. Um, I think I can speak for all of us and say that, you know, we love architecture, but the the line of this magazine isn't necessarily to stake a strong claim to what is architecture or to delimit or parcel off um, architecture from everything else. This isn't about disciplinary specificity in that way, but rather um, we start from a kind of omnivorous proposition, um, trying to understand architecture as one part of something larger, like student debt, like the privatization of uh, urban public space. Um, the built environment uh, now, uh, in the age of the Anthropocene, uh, arguably includes everything. And that translates into a very wide remit of what is discussed in Naira. And I think that's a real strength. Yeah, it's um, uh, a a publication that's been a, um, I've been watching with much admiration is uh, Defector Media, um, which is a sports blog, more or less. Um, and they do um, really good combination of commentary and reported work. Uh, and one of their kind of through lines philosophically is like, yes, we we definitely are about sports, but we're also not just about sports and we're allowed to write about anything we want. Um, and so they are very much so like, we are experts at sports. We will give you the news on sports, but we may go into other topics. And I, in the same way, <laughs> um, New York Review of Books, like definitely about books, definitely not just about books. Um, and um, in the same way, like we're very much so rooted, we're, we're rooted uh, in architecture, we are rooted in um, New York, and we're not afraid of showing you that like this is, yeah, of being, having this very specific um, remit, um, but uh, that doesn't constrain um, what can then, you can talk about. If anything, I think it enables you, if you are very specific about this is where we're coming from. Um, it can allow you to get much further than to say, oh, we, we're just about everything. It's an interesting combination. On the one hand, I mean, you referenced the the progressive, you know, kind of trajectory of, of, of much of the editorial frame. But there's also this return to the building as a site of, you know, criticism of kind of public venue for com conversation and the reception of the work. But it's it's done so in a way which is in, quite generous and opening as opposed to something more kind of neo-fundamentalist, which is let's get back to building and let's be serious. You know, I think for me, it's the it's the way in which the buildings are situated and received and discussed that, that you know, but it's also a pleasure to hold the thing in your hand, you know, as you know, our kind of print media is going away as the narrative. I, I'm interested to know, you know, Nicholas, how, how you make the decision in 2019, admittedly as a modest 11 by 17 format at that point, folded in half vertically. How do you make the decision to go into the analog print business in 2019? Um, 
Right. I mean, it's just so so lucrative. One couldn't resist. Um, <laughs> Is it true that one can take a large fortune and make it into a small fortune by going into publishing? Probably. Um, the um, right. So I, there are a few different. The old print question, um, one of it, it, what part of it is it, it just introduces amount of discipline um, and it says, this is what it is. Um, and we have to cut things off or we need to fill gaps. Um, and so, you know, it's complete in a way that it's hard to know if something is complete or not, if you're online. Um, another part actually is economics in terms of people will pay for something that is in print in a way that it's harder to make them pay um, if it's online. Um, and that is actually, it is our largest source of income, our print subscribers. Um, at this point, it's actually a serious amount of money that really helps sustain the publication. Um, and if you're listening to this, you should consider signing up for a print subscription because it's still not nearly enough. Um, and it's an excellent publication to read. Um, and uh, in a final way, this is actually something interesting. Um, we, one of our recent launch parties, uh, a writer came who works for Next City. I was actually thrilled that he was there because I've read many of his pieces about, um, I think he writes some of the best pieces about banks in America. Um, and um, he wants to write for us and that's really cool. Um, and uh, he was saying, as I was handing him our issues, like, I really wish we were in print because this actually makes it much more accessible. Like I'm dealing with a lot of issues that like, um, you go into a community meeting uh, or you go into a space and you want to say, uh, here's my piece, um, you should read it. Uh, but instead you have to say, let me send you a link to my piece and then good luck reading it on your phone where it's competing for attention with everything else. Whereas uh, when it's in print, um, there it is, it's present, it's physically, you can literally share it with somebody else. Um, and that's actually quite powerful. And we've also seen, um, you know, analog things in print, even newsprint will be much more archivally durable. I'm assuming that these things are also in libraries that are subscribing. I would hope so. We have libraries signing up to subscribe. Um, we've had some since the beginning. We were a little bit negligent around the earlier issues about making sure we had enough in archives. So I think there are some issues for which we have literally one left. Um, but, um, the, uh, now we're, we're doing better on that. Um, Order your back issues now while they still, uh, while they still exist. Um, uh, we've talked about the kind of editorial frame. Uh, we've talked a little bit about the kind of origin story. Um, I want to pivot, talk a little bit about design. I mean, that's one of the things that's characterized the review over its various iterations. Um, uh, you, you launched, you know, May, May 1, 2019. May Day, is that, first of all, is that a coincidence, the May Day thing? Yes and no. Um, so, uh, it, it was, we just knew it would be a good date to launch. Um, and we knew that we would have a progressive bent and it would be good to, uh, embrace that. Actually last year, we kind of came out with a little bit more. We, we celebrated May Day by, um, sharing a bunch of labor specific articles that we'd had. Um, we're slowly putting things up online. Um, and so we, we said here is, and, and someday in the future, it would be really great actually to have a proper May Day party. Um, so, uh, it's, uh, it's a good day to start, to start something. It seemed auspicious in retrospect. I, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't following the review 
that far back, but I have since um, kind of doubled back. So I, I think it's an interesting um, it's an interesting history. Um, the first uh, dozen or more issues um, they presented a kind of full serif kind of very kind of what I would describe as a very traditional kind of column structure. Um, and then um, at some point, um, 2021, you went through a variety of different looks. So to tell us about design, how you make decisions about, we, we now of course have the, the fuller, uh, you know, kind of what I think of as a kind of newsprint broadsheet format, which is uh, what is it, 10 and a half by 16 or something? That's right. Yeah, and I can I can speak a little bit to that kind of design evolution since 2019. Um, our first iteration of the uh, of the review was totally straightforward, 11 by 17, fronted front and back with a very rigid um, column structure. Um, over the years, it's evolved into a few different things. Uh, first, a kind of inter intermediary phase in 2020, um, where we worked with our now art director, the graphic designer, Laura Combs, to figure out how we could uh, kind of revamp the design to exploit uh, production efficiencies uh, with a certain kind of printer and a certain kind of format. And we wanted to explore uh, with Laura, what would be the kind of possibilities of designing for print now as a small publication uh, with a um, rapidly changing group of contributors covering many things and publishing uh, just about every month at that point. Um, since we relaunched in the new magazine format, we've kind of continued to think about what exactly does publishing and print uh, afford us. Um, we can tell you that it costs us quite a bit. It makes it very difficult to be timely, um, but it also uh, allows us to do a few different things that I'd Kind of count as quite um, unique to the magazine. One just being uh, to run an extremely robust um, art and illustration program. So one of the rules that we have as a print publication is that we generally do not include photography. We don't run glossy photos. We don't run press release photos. We don't reproduce photography as a, um, as a kind of uh, standard of operating. Rather than that, um, we work with a roster of illustrators to produce original drawings, um, which is a really wonderful kind of feature of the magazine. So we work with illustrators to do our covers, to produce spot illustrations, and even to create original art for um, some of our features. What's up with the rat? <laughs> yeah, that was um, issue 22. Uh, Kate Wagner um, wrote a piece for us. Kate Wagner of McMansion Hell um, wrote a piece about uh, how Scabby, you know, Scabby the rat, there's this inflatable rat that unions will take and they will park it in front of somebody who has crossed them in New York. Um, in the same way as like being physically present makes a difference. Um, so yeah, the Scabby, the giant inflatable rat that's out of, outside of non-union construction sites, uh, I think across the country, I, I'm certainly familiar with it, you know, here in Cambridge often. Um, and so that was the, the August, September, 2021 issue where one or more rats appeared. Yeah. So Kate um, wrote that Scabby the rat is an excellent architecture critic and we should all aspire to such a level of, you know, straightforwardness. Um, and um, I think uh, it might have been uh, Philip and Laura discussed having, let's put rats all over the issue. Exactly. Yeah, and I'm really enjoying this kind of institutional history in the making. 
um, uh, Charles, that you were able to locate the first appearance of our rat mascot. Um, but it, it's true, the, the rat proliferated in our print design and then has been uh, kind of adopted as a mascot that we call the Nye Rat, New York Review of Architecture Rat, Nyra, Nyra. Uh, nicely done, nicely done. Uh, issue number 33 um, from earlier, 2023, earlier this year, uh, features um, three scabbies um, perched on a beam high above the city, eating lunch apparently having a, a bagel with a schmear and a banana um it's interesting the the illustration program you mentioned you know first of all the the avoidance of the you know autonomous reproduction of you know um uh imagery photographs in particular and in favor of line work um uh, the back of several recent issues has featured something that i find really really fascinating which is called block for block tell us about block for block block for block is uh that's the um so that's a a program where um there is a a architectural personality who is prominent on on twitter um we know who it is but uh names the hustle architect um runs their work anonymously um and uh they had an idea for a column um and that column is block for block uh and it is where they take a block something from one part of New York and they switch it out for someplace something anywhere else um and it's very deadpan and straightforward and um heavy on the details uh and I think in being so straightforward will often have a lot of other meanings that people can um find in it what do you find so fascinating about it because well uh, thanks for the for the opening I mean for me for, first of all um it's a beautifully drawn line drawing. So just at that level, you know, the, there's a kind of intellectual clarity of the the transposition of one block for another block. And of course, the Manhattan, the Ur grid and its iterations, you know, from, you know, um, the original kind of ur beginnings of urban planning in New York City and the zoning ordinance earlier in the 20th century through through, uh, you know, cities of a captive globe around Kulhas, you know, there's a whole series of histories that are embedded there in that simple line uh, drawing. Um, you know, the 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 one that first caught my eye was the one that sort of replaced, uh, you know, took took a, a one of the super tall, you know, kind of skyscrapers from Billionaire's Road just south of Central Park and moved it into um, some kind of verdant, you know, kind of forest. I thought, well, that's interesting and productive. The most recent one that I've seen, um, you know, puts Burton, Bertrand Goldberg's uh, Marina City, you know, accidentally in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. So there's these kind of collisions that are happening just by a simple kind of transposition. Um, and there's something of the effect of a cartoon. It's like a little bit like a cartoon in a newspaper. You know, it's a kind of different thing. It's a different medium. Um, and there's a little narrative that's inferred uh, that goes along with it. And, and that plus the anonymity of its authorship that I've, I've just found it, you know, compelling. That's good to know. That's uh, it's really interesting. Um, yeah, no, it's um, and we're we're looking for essentially creating recurring columns over time that have a, a strong um, feature and voice that our our readers can connect to, um, and uh, that is that is part of it. Um, so that's uh, that's really interesting. Philip, you, you've uh, you know been present since nearly the beginning of the review on a variety of topics. So, I mean, I, I've read pieces on the history of woodcut prints. Uh, you've done a review of a, an exhibition of paintings by Zoe Zengelis 
among other things. So you clearly have, you know, taken your editorial at large kind of mandate to kind of venture, you know, architecturally adjacent. Um, what are you working on next that you hope to make it into the review? Oh, thank you. Um, in this latest issue, uh, my um, my contribution to this latest issue was a centerfold by by James Wines, the the architect, and that was um, that's the beginning of a kind of new engagement with the magazine that I'm working on now, which is to build out essentially an additions program. Um, the ambition of that is essentially to expand uh, Naira's ability as a platform such that it can kind of hold space for experimental work, that it can be a kind of vehicle for commissioning new uh, contributions in visual formats, and also distribute and disseminate uh, ideas in visual formats. Um, I can tell you also that one of the kind of first projects that we've completed under the Naira Editions umbrella um, is a cyanometer. I think maybe Charles, you have a, a copy of one of these, or if you don't, I'll make sure you get one. But the cyanometer um, was a kind of 19th century device for measuring the blueness of the sky. Um, it was an instrument that was uh, invented by Alexander von Humboldt. Um, but in this case, we revived the format of the cyanometer um, as an occasion to run a fundraiser for a Ukrainian architecture school in Kharkov. Um, so this was a, a project that came to Naira through friends of mine, um, Eric Herman and Ashley Bigham of Outpost Office, um, who designed what they call a nebometer, so the Ukrainian translation of cyanometer. Um, in this case, the device is tuned to the skies of paintings of Ukraine made by Ukrainian painters, um, and it was an absolutely beautiful gesture. But it also kind of uh, proved or let's say reaffirmed my belief in the power of print. So this was a format, a fundraiser that produced a physical object um, and that not only produced a kind of new attention around the effects of this war, but it also produced immediate tangible and even social effects. So we're very proud to say that we raised enough money to keep that school open for several months in the midst of conflict. So for my, my part of Naira and where I see uh, us kind of evolving in the near future is exactly that, thinking about what else uh, print can do and more specifically what a kind of additions program could accomplish. Fantastic. Uh, Nicholas, for our listeners that want to um, pitch a story ID, idea, contribute, subscribe, uh, send you an anonymous donation to fund the review, where can they find you? Um, all of those things. Uh, I mean, so definitely our website, nyra.nyc. Um, you can also send something to our main account, which is editor at nyra.nyc. Um, and then um, we actually, so um, subscriptions, if you want to contribute, we actually have a really nice, I think, system for contributors where we have a, a, something we call the writer's room. Um, that's a, a kind of an internal email list, but we leave it pretty porous. Um, and there's sign up instructions on our website for how to join that. Um, and we send assignments that every single week that people can pick up because we're looking for people to go to events. Um, and that can become a great door in because we find it's kind of a low stakes assignment where we can get to know you and see what you're capable of without like, oh my God, the issue can't go to print unless this person files. Um, 
sort of situation. So we can take risks on people, um, which is really nice. And identify emerging talent. I mean, it's, uh, I think, another of the remarkable contributions that the review has made. Um, Nicholas Kemper, Philip Denny, thanks so much for the review and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.